global crisis. Bible prophecy. Health and preparedness. You're just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch. Father in heaven, we come to you now in prayer asking for you to open your word unto our understanding. We know that there are difficult things in the prophecies, but we also know that Revelation says that we'll be blessed if we hear and read and understand the words of these prophecies. So we do ask for a peace that transcends all understanding, even as we are confronted with challenging things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to 11th Hour Dispatch. I'm Scott Ritzema, your host once again, and we have another in the series of the prophecy sessions that we've been going through on the broadcast. And I can say I'm very excited about this one. This is a tough one to understand and accept and receive. And the first time that I studied this through in the book of Revelation, it was a hard teaching. And one time Jesus presented a hard teaching and many people left him and Jesus said to his disciples, you're not going to leave me too, are you? And they said, well, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So let's open the word of God and see what words he has to share with us today. I want to begin with a story of Elijah. You're familiar with Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest. His name literally means Jehovah is my God. And which really meant something at the time in which he lived because God's people were in a state of idolatrous apostasy. They had fallen away. And in what way had they fallen away? Well, they had mixed together truth and error. Israel had brought in the worship of Baal, the God, the false God, Baal, right alongside the worship of God, Jehovah God, the true God. And so Elijah, the one who eventually was taken up into heaven, and a chariot of fire. This, this great prophet had a very important job. In the context of Israel having mixed together truth and error, God and Baal, and in the context of Israel having fallen away from God, God sent Elijah with a very important message. And he first told him to tell the king, there's going to be a period where there will not be any rain or dew upon the earth. And that was a difficult time for Israel. This consequence, this punishment, was meant to wake them up to their spiritual state. But Ahab was not woken up. When he saw Elijah sometime later, he said, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Well, it wasn't Elijah's fault, of course. He had just delivered the message and the prophecy of what God was about to do. And indeed, it was true. God did withhold rain. So Elijah fired right back at Ahab in First Kings 18. And he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. So God is about to call his people back to his commandments. Elijah challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel. 850 false prophets versus one true Elijah being the true, because truth is always in the minority. So Elijah confronts them with this question on Mount Carmel. He says, we're going to build two altars, and we're going to see whose God answers by fire to consume the sacrifice. And he asks Israel, 
in 1 Kings 18, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. So now we've seen three things. First of all, truth and error are mixed in their worship. They have a false worship system because truth and error are mingled together. Secondly, Israel has fallen away from God. And thirdly, Elijah is calling them back to God's commandments to take their stand on one side of the or other or the other with a clear line of demarcation and a choice. Will you honor God or will you continue in, continue in your apostasy? Well, of course, the uh, prophets of Baal prepare their altar and they get into their uh, frenzy of, of prayer and shouting and cutting themselves literally to try to get Baal to answer by fire, but there is no Baal and there is no fire coming down from heaven from the supposed god of thunderstorms and lightning and rain who could easily just send lightning if he, if he really existed, but he doesn't. Baal is a false god, and so the prophets of Baal fail. So then it's Elijah's turn. He, he just douses the entire altar, the wood, the sacrifice, digs ditches. There's, there's just water everywhere, so they can't accuse him of trickery. And he prays to the Lord. And not, not long past that, and that fireball comes hurtling toward Mount Carmel, Carmel from heaven. The altar, the wood, the stones, and the sacrifice are all burned up. God is revealed as the true God in this. And then the prophets of Baal are slain. But remember, God doesn't just come in and execute judgment. No, he sends warnings first. Did you notice the three steps? One, Israel had mixed truth and error in worship. Two, thus they had fallen away. And three, God sends a clear message. Come back to my commandments. Take your stand on one side or the other. This is the Elijah message that precedes the punishments of God. And indeed, the, the prophets of Baal were slain after they refused to return to the Lord. Malachi 4, verse 5, actually predicts that the work of Elijah is going to be repeated and was repeated. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the very last prophecy in the Old Testament, the second to last verse in Malachi, says that God is going to send Elijah before the Messiah comes, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Jesus' disciples understood this, and they said, okay, well, if you're the Messiah, is, is Elijah supposed to come first? Jesus essentially says to them, well, actually, yeah, Elijah is already here. What? Now, what was Jesus talking about? Well, he was speaking of none other than John the Baptist who dressed just like Elijah, who was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. John the Baptist wore camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, John is the Elijah who was to come. Now that's an amazing statement from Jesus to say, John is the Elijah who was to come? Well, John had told people he was not Elijah because literally John is not the person of Elijah, but he bore Elijah's message. Think about it. The Jews in Jesus' day had done the same thing. They mingled truth and error. Jesus confronted them with this very thing. He said, you worship God in vain. So a false worship system of the mingling of truth and error. 
Jesus said to them in Matthew 15, verse 9, you worship God in vain because you are teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So they had done the same thing ancient Israel did, although with a more religious veneer, a more godly veneer, but it was commandments of men nonetheless, not the commandments of God that the Pharisees were teaching. So had Israel fallen away like Ancient Israel? Well, indeed. John called the leaders of the religious people at that time a brood of vipers. Jesus said that your father is not Abraham as you think. Your father is the devil. And then Jesus really unleashed in Matthew 23, and he calls them uh, whitewashed tombs and broods of vipers and sons of hell. I mean, strong language is used. And then, of course, just as Elijah called for repentance, John gave them an ultimatum regarding God's requirements. Repent and be baptized. Make a straight path, clear, decided, firm. Take your stand on one side or the other. Well, then that begs the question, if all three of those steps were followed in the same way with John the Baptist as with Elijah, were the false teachers then slain after John the Baptist's time? Well, in fact, John the Baptist alludes to this. He says, if you don't produce fruit, produce good works, produce righteousness in your life through faith in Jesus Christ, then you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire, he says. That's strong language. Jesus says the same thing after Matthew 23, where he lays out all these woes. Woe to you, Pharisees, you sons of hell, and all of this. He goes on right into Matthew 24 after that and predicts the fall of Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. So indeed, the false teachers were slain at that time, 40 years from the time of Jesus. And it was horrific what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the Elijah message came through Elijah, and then it came through John the Baptist. But remember, Malachi 4 verse 5 says that God's going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, that language sounds a whole lot more like Christ's second coming than even his first. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is coming, so we would be able to expect then the Elijah message to be going forth in our day, in our time. So I hope you can open in your Bibles. If you can't, make a note of this. You really want to study Revelation 14, particularly verses 6, well, the whole chapter really, but we're going to read verses 6 through 12, and you're going to notice this same pattern, three steps. The first step being a mixing of truth and error that God is rebuking and calling people from. Secondly, an indication that God's people have fallen. And thirdly, a mention of a clear line of demarcation where to take your stand to avoid being slain and to return to God's commandments. Let's read it. Revelation 14 verse 6 says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwelled on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So the whole world is going to hear this message of the last days, this Elijah message that precedes the great and dreadful day of the Lord and the slaying of the wicked. Verse 7, the angel says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. What is that part about worship him? Well, this is about the worship controversy in the last days. Again, a mingling of truth and error. John is quoting here from the fourth commandment. 
the most neglected commandment, the Sabbath commandment. We've got a counterfeit Sabbath going around in Sunday sacredness, which only has man's authority behind it. And you now see again the first step in Elijah's day, in Jesus' day, and in our day. The Elijah message is rebuking the mingling of truth and error, the mingling of true worship and counterfeit. And then in verse 8, you see indeed fallenness. It says there followed another angel saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And we're going to study that entity, Babylon, after the break. But first, the third angel's message goes like this. That was the second. We're going to come back to the second after the break. Here's the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He's going to be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. Now, that's a pretty serious thing right there. It's a warning that there is a slaying coming. But first, there's a clear line of demarcation. Do not take the mark of the beast. And he immediately follows this by saying, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. One side of this divide, you'll have people with faith in Jesus Christ who honor the commandments, all of them. And on the other side, those who have the mark of the beast. And those will be the ones that if they do not receive this warning to avoid the mark, they will sadly, tragically perish. Not because God wants to hurt anybody. No, God wants everybody to be saved, it says in the Bible multiple times. And so our God is love and the Elijah message is going forth. A warning cry. We'll be right back. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher, and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. What does it take to raise spiritually strong young people in our homes? Well, the George Barna research results are in. Parents who have had actual measurable success, who have raised their children to become solid Christian young adults, these parents actually lived out what they were teaching their children to live. They loved their children unconditionally. They were committed to sacrifice what they wanted to do to do what was best for the kids. Any parents with children in the home need to know this. Write down the DVD title and share it with them right away. It's called How to Raise the Remnant. Now more than ever, parents are in desperate need of solid biblical counsel to guide us back to God's plan for raising godly children in these last days. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of studying once again the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Interestingly, these three messages take place immediately before the second coming of Christ. So what you read in Revelation 14, 6 through 12 takes place right before the harvest of this earth takes place, the sickle comes down, and the earth is reaped and harvested. 
And of course, that could be a very good thing if we are in Christ. If we trust in him for our salvation, this is an exciting message, but a fearful message for the rebellious indeed. Now, the second angel's message here in verse 8, when he says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Who is this Babylon? Who is she, this woman who made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication? I want to introduce introduce you to two women, actually, in the book of Revelation so that you can understand who this entity is. What is a woman, first of all, in Bible prophecy? In Revelation 12, verse 1, it says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. This is a woman, and so you ask yourself, well, what does woman mean symbolically? Revelation is a symbolic book. And you see all over in the Bible, in Ephesians 5, in Jeremiah 3, Hosea 2, Galatians 4, Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, numerous, numerous places, that a woman represents a people of God or a ecclesiastical institution, a church, a religious body of some kind, whether good or bad. And you see, this is a pure woman because she's clothed. This woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and so on, clothed with light-bearing things like sun, moon, stars. These are all producing light. Light, of course, in the Bible represents truth. It says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. So what, is the, what, are, we, what are we to do to the world? We are to go to all nations, teach them, and baptize them. That's what it says in Matthew 28. Go into all the world, teach, and baptize. So what are we teaching? What are we bearing? We are bearing the light, bearing the truth of the word of God. Ephesians 5 verse 8 also says that you were once in darkness, and now you are light in the Lord, so walk in the light. So you've come into the truth that you walk in. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we walk in the light that God provides us. In other words, we live by the truth that God has given to us. So light represents truth. This woman is pure. She is clothed with light or truth. She is representing and reflecting and illuminating truth to the world. Also, she has 12 stars on her crown. That's an interesting number because 12 always represents the complete number of God's people. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 12 apostles. So this woman represents the good and holy, true bride of Christ, the church of of God that is true through down through the ages. Then you flip over to Revelation 17 and you see quite the contrast. This woman is not looking so pure and certainly is not bearing light. In Revelation 17 verse 3, John saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So what kind of woman is this? What kind of religious body or ecclesiastical institution, what kind of church is this woman representing? Well, first of all, she's riding the beast that has seven heads and ten horns. And we identified that beast from Revelation 13. It's the beast that ruled the Dark Ages Europe for 1,260 years, exactly as the prophecy said it would. Daniel 7 goes into much detail about the pompous words of this power, that he would think to change times and laws that he would persecute the saints, 
that he would be a blasphemous power, it says in Revelation 13. We know who this beast is that she is riding, and it is none other than the Vatican City, Papal Rome, particularly the political power thereof. A woman represents religious power. So what religion, what church is seated upon the political power of Vatican City? So this, this doesn't take a, a history scholar to identify who this woman represents. And this is not meant as an insult, like if you know somebody who happens to be a Roman Catholic and they grew up in this religious denomination, this is not, you don't say that person is the harlot of Babylon. No, this, this impure woman who is arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she has a golden cup in her hand full of abomination and the filthiness of her fornication, this is strong biblical language that's used symbolically to represent an institution that is teaching mistruths, that is unfaithful to the Bible. Fornications representing infidelity. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So clearly this church contrasts with the church of Revelation 12, the true church of God. This is the counterfeit church. This is the one that appears as a woman. It's supposedly the, the people of God, but blasphemous, making everybody drunk with the wine of her fornication. In fact, what does that drunkenness mean? Well, well the word Babylon actually comes from the Tower of Babel originally, or Babel, and that word just simply means confusion. So Babylon here would denote spiritual confusion. And she has this cup in her hand and literally all the nations are drunk with her wine. They've received her teachings. They've received her influence. They are, in, they are confused, unfaithful. And many people who believe wrongly about the Bible do so innocently. They do so sincerely. They don't know that they are deceived. So this is not a condemnation of any individual. In fact, there's something very, very helpful when you read in this text. It actually says in verse eight, uh, chapter 18, it says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Because remember, there are the, the slaying is coming. Though there's a judgment coming, an execution of judgment coming. And God is warning people now, saying, come out of her. But notice, my people. So God has heaven-bound, sincere Jesus Christ followers in even this mother church, which is described in the Bible as unfaithful blasphemous, false, and confusing the world. Being in that institution through no choice of your own, probably being born into it, baptized as a baby, etc., does not make you guilty of those beliefs that you've been deceived of. But God doesn't want us to remain in darkness, right? So this is why he says, come out of her, my people. And this is the Elijah message. We've got to be warning people. And I know this is not politically correct in our day. You're not supposed to say that somebody else's beliefs are in error. But 
How else can you save them from the plagues that are coming and receiving the mark of the beast other than to say, look, folks, let's read the Bible together and let it correct all of our misconceptions. Nobody is superior than anybody else in this, but we all must follow the word of God because the word of God is superior to my beliefs, to my preconceived ideas, to the inherited ideas that were downloaded into my mind from early childhood that are not consistent with the Bible come out of Babylon. Now, you notice something else here. This is not just those of the papal faith, of the the Roman papacy's religion that are called out of Babylon. No, it says, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Now, if she's a mother church, she also has daughters, she has offspring, And the Bible says that they are harlots also. Harlots, meaning unfaithful. This is is a reference to very vivid, symbolic language of of, of prostitution, of infidelity. So if there are daughter churches who are also harlots just as the mother church, how, how do you know which ones, which Protestant churches for that matter, are daughter harlots of the mother church. And again, we're speaking very frankly here because we've got to see what the Bible says about this. This is not something that's unloving or trying to criticize anybody. It's it's a very unloving thing to do to conceal the truth from people so that they have no opportunity to repent and to come into greater light that Jesus is inviting them into. But here's a good test. The two greatest deceptions or things that people are confused about that Babel, Babylon confusion has caused the two greatest uh, doctrinal misinformation ideas that are still floating around the Christian world today throughout all of her daughter churches are two teachings that we've taken a deep and close look at in the Bible in this series. And if you're just listening to this for the first time, I know this is heavy stuff. It's like, man, where did this all come from? Go back through the series. Go to BibleProphecyTruth.com. Go to the website where you'll hear me presenting these messages on MP3s that are also on the radio. It's 11thHourDispatch.com. Study deeply also BibleProphecyTruth.com and get into your Bible. But what are those two great deceptions that we've covered? Number one. This mother church has inherited false ideas from Greek paganism regarding the nature of of the human soul. And it is taught, still to this day in almost every church, that a human being naturally and inherently has an immortal soul. The Bible says that when you're dead, you're asleep. The dead know nothing, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. But the mother church has taught differently. The greatest deception, and by the way, that's important because that's setting people up for a Revelation 16 style deception where the demons go forth to, to do signs and wonders. And Jesus says the signs and wonders are going to be so deceiving that it would deceive even the very elect if that were possible. So we're going to see familiar spirits. The devil can transform himself into an angel of light, right? So we're going to see Mary and the saints, we've already seen these things happen. Dead loved ones appearing, although these are demons, impersonating the saints, the friends, the family, 
who've died. The Bible says that David is not in heaven in Acts 2. The Bible says that the dead do not praise God, do not think, do not hope, do not know anything. The Bible says the dead are asleep and only at the resurrection will we put on immortality. It says in Romans that we are to seek immortality, which means we don't have it naturally. Satan made that lie originally in the Garden of Eden. He said, you will not surely die in a state of sin. You're, you're, you're immortal. No, not true, biblically speaking. So that's one of the two great deceptions that the harlot daughters have retained. We'll get to the second one next time on this very broadcast. We'll see you next time. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, stated that television is the satanic family altar. Television is the area of our culture, the movie industry, Hollywood, that's just saturated with spiritualism. It's the devil's playground. He's having a field day with American families in this area. And I can tell you personal testimonies. I can tell you a half dozen friends, just friends of mine, who've told me about things that they've seen, demonic things that they've seen because of having these movies and having this worldly stuff in their lives and in their homes. I do want to say this in a very, very clear and strong manner. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So don't be afraid. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Brought to you by Belt of Truth Ministries.org.